yeah, depicted by white individuals with blackface. So there's a huge discussion around it, about the racism behind it, because of individuals who uh, find it offensive. Uh, welcome back to the Rex Crim Show, Alex. Thank you for having me. Very glad to be back. Surprised you actually invited me back. Oh, definitely. This is going to be more casual, I think. Uh, We've got lots to cover, but to give context uh, to those who might not have heard your prior episode, I'll link uh, link, um, uh, that former episode, us talking about criminology in the show notes. So we were just talking about your resume, and uh, I was uh, buttering you up and tooting your horn before we get into the topic of critical race theory. Sounds good to me. Sounds good. We were just having a short introduction. You were asking about recent endeavors and uh, thinking there were some, but it's been pretty tame at the moment. So, uh, I was uh, I was saying that your uh, your Dutch must be getting significantly better since your most recent publication with presumably your supervisor is, and uh, and others uh, are all. It, it looks like it's a Dutch article. Just pronounce it. Oh, I can't even remember which one it was because I think it was a p- taken part on a. Um, how do you say? I was contributing basically to a. Um, to a report, but uh, I'll find it afterwards uh, in the background. Sure. But uh, I didn't actually do any of the writing in it, so don't worry about that. Basically, what I was, oh yeah, this one, perspective of interbesturlijk samenwerking, beelden van het Rijk en decentrale overheden quantitatief vergelijken. So it's an um, extremely long and boring title just to look into how different levels of government interact with each other. So the local, national, and regional, pretty much. Well, you're, uh, you're, you never cease to amaze me. Your Dutch uh, is second to none, although I'm sure the real uh, Dutch folks would might pick apart small things, but uh, that is heel hood. Thank you, Val. I still get the squinty eyes when I'm speaking in Dutch to someone, sort of, mm, what's he trying to say? In a quick um, summary, just um, share some context about where you are, your university, and your... Um, and your, you know, your current work right now in politicization. Yeah, I'm still uh, at the University of Groningen, in the north of the Netherlands. Currently, just entered the third of my fourth year of my PhD, so another just under two years to go so far. Um, and yeah, I'm doing, as you mentioned yourself, research on what we'd call administrative politicization. So I'm looking into how civil servants are becoming more and more politically tainted and less, perhaps, bureaucrats or technocrats, etc. And what the impact is of that in a uh, in a shortly put, basically, and uh, that's what's been keeping me busy for the past two years. I expect some of that will bleed into our conversation, and I hope it does. Uh, but oh, we agreed, yep. yeah, definitely. But I want it to be casual and uh, and relatable, and um, and this thing, ha- this topic of critical race theory, has been on my mind, and I have to acknowledge the sort of bias and prejudice of two. Uh, white guys having this conversation, um, you know, who dare, dare I say, you know, we're, we're sort of on the, um, you know, we have uh, some socioeconomic status and et cetera. So that aside, uh, let's have some critical discussion about this because uh, my understanding from the videos I've seen on YouTube and the riots that seem to be going on and the misunderstandings about it all um, mm are in need of explication. So you jump right into it and tell me about the conversation you were having with your sister who's in the US right now. Oh yeah, so we were chatting, um, I think it was just last weekend actually, we were having a catch up, etc. And she is a bit older than me, so she has 
two sons. One of them is now 13, I believe. So he's currently in, uh, I think you call it in the uh, American continent, you call it middle school, which is just after primary school, pretty much. And then we were just discussing about this notion of critical race theory, which, if I'm honest, we don't hear as much about here in Europe as perhaps you do over on the other side of the Atlantic. So I was asking her, oh, what is it exactly? We hear about it in, uh, I see it popping up on my Facebook feed or in some um, recommended videos on YouTube, etc. And uh, she was explaining how it was kind of this uh, this new theory or this new way of teaching history in, uh, in, uh, in uh, middle schools in the USA. Um, and she was sharing her, um, how could we say, her positives and her, how do you say, her concerns and her likes with it, etc. And for me, it was a completely new topic. I just heard about it in name, but knew nothing else. And that's why I kind of delved it, uh, dove into it uh, more recently. And then I'm kind of reflecting back on the conversation and I can see different, uh, different elements sticking out where I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around the term when I look back onto it. And uh, as you were saying, talking about politicization, which we'll get into afterwards, seems to be a highly politicized uh, term now, in my opinion. So I'm curious of getting your ideas and impressions about it. But uh, the first thing that popped out to me is basically what people call critical race theory or what is being labeled critical race theory as taught in American high schools isn't actually critical race theory, in my opinion. I mean, I'd love to hear your take on it. but I, I'm still making sense of it. I think it's also probably um, a little more front and center in the U.S., um, and it might fall under different language in, in Canada. I want to. I think it's important to acknowledge, uh, coincidentally or or maybe um, in, in, importantly, we're speaking. Uh, this is being recorded on the first annual ever um, National Day for Truth and Reconciliation in Canada. Oh, so wow! If, I'm gonna. I'm gonna. Uh, we'll weave that into our conversation as well. But uh, people colloquially uh, maybe have heard uh, about this in terms of Orange Shirt Day. And, you know, it, it's about uh, paying homage to the some of the atrocities that have happened as a result of um, forced assimilation and, and findings you people have probably heard all around the world in the news about uh, um, discoveries of remains from the residential um the uh, residential school system. So the legacy of which is carrying on today. And uh, I'm just hearing a phone ringing in the background, but I wasn't expecting a call. Anyway, carrying on. Uh, so Orange Shirt Day today, the first national in Canada. And um, and this is a relevant conversation uh, because I think there's a need to recognize the history of the past. And um, so for me, I would put it succinctly to this idea of um, equity versus equality. And that's sort of the, Absolutely. the juxtaposition uh, that I, that how I understand it in the States. I think people might refer to this certainly in work uh, as the idea of affirmative action, um, hiring, you know, mm. um, people that, that have been identified as uh, disadvantaged uh, historically. Um, but it's a problem because it creates divisiveness. And I think identity politics plays a big part of this uh, as well. Yeah. So, yeah, help me understand this. No, I completely uh, agree with you 100%. And I think that the way that history is taught, not just in America, Canada, uh, but anywhere, basically, from a Western perspective, is very much focused on the point of view of us as uh, colonizers back in a couple of uh, centuries ago. 
I think that's problematic because we kind of therefore keep this very ethnocentric view of history, etc. We tell it from the eyes of the victors, pretty much, rather than from the eyes of the other party, more or less. Um, and I actually teach a course here at the, the campus where I work in, uh, in uh, Groningen. Well, actually, it's in Leeuwarden, but for the University of Groningen. And I had my uh, second supervisor, who's from New Zealand, who was uh, taking part in this course. And he was talking about New Zealand and this governmental system of New Zealand. And he said one thing which was really interesting. He said, so it's Westminster. It's based on the US model, the UK model, colonies, etc. But the one, what's the one core difference compared to um, these other systems for you? No one in the class really knew, but he said, well, we were colonized. So we're taking it. Our way of viewing politics is from the point of view of a country that was colonized rather than a colonizer, although we're still a Western country. Anyway, that's a bit of a sidestep from where I wanted to go with this. But I think it's important, and this is why, how do you say, as you said, what's happening today in Canada um, with Orange Shirt Day, these are things that really need to, to come out, and I think that we could we should encourage them, etc. But the issues, I think, at hand are basically there's two which come, and number one is that everything gets polarized now, so either you're for or against. I think that's an issue because it leaves no room for a healthy debate around um, uh, how could you say people who have certain um, concerns, have certain questions, etc. about these, uh, how do you say, people who about government who want to apologize for acts. And I'm not taking a stance here. I'm not taking a stance to not be confounded or anything. But since things are polarized, either you're for or against, it makes having a discussion for people who have concerns uh, on either side of the field a bit more complicated. So I think that's the first issue. And I think the second issue is also basically that... Um, when we take terms such as uh, critical race theory, these are conflated to meaning that all white people are racist. And this is what I was talking about with being politicized, politicized sorry, is now as soon as you evoke the term critical race theory, it's become laden with so many values, so many norms, that people automatically identify themselves as being on one side of the spectrum or the other when they hear it. And this is the issues that I have basically with critical race theory. Um, I'm more than happy to talk about it from my perspective, what I understand about it, uh, in itself, um, and then compare that to teaching history from a non-biased point of view and being honest about teaching history, which we have a lot of work to do in schooling systems all around the Western world, I completely agree with. But uh, I think there's an important distinction to be made, first of all, between teaching history in schools to high school children from one perspective and critical race theory, which are two different things. Mm -hmm. How then do you manage to get a, an objective history if, if history is always written by the victors um how can you then as a white man uh of certain privilege uh, possibly teach a course that is equitable and informed by the you know harsh realities um uh, in the past it's a great question, and I wish I uh, had an answer to it. If I was a <laughs> historical philosopher, I wish yeah. I could uh, give you an answer to that. But um, I, have, I have no idea, if I'm honest, and I can see um, there's a lot of issues with having only perspectives of the winners or a white male, heterosexual male, teaching these sort of courses, etc., and all these different gender, races, racist, uh, power imbalance issues. So I can definitely see that there's an issue there. For example, if we look back to Nazi Germany, however... They had a lot of reconciliation to do after World War II, and they were also in a position of, how are we going to be honest and transparent about what happened, 
with what we have done within Europe and our allies who helped us to do these things in Europe and all around the world into different areas to make sure that we don't forget these issues that happen and they don't reproduce. And I think that Germany is probably one of the greatest examples to look at today um, when we reflect upon what happened in World War II and how transparent they are with teaching it. And they kind of took a, or attempted to, I'm not saying that it was 100% successful all the time, but they tried to take a more uh, neutral stance by basically saying, okay, these are the bad things that happened, these are the good things that happened, but overall, we can't categorize things as good or bad. History is history, and we have to be honest about it, we have to be as transparent as possible, and we have to learn from it. And I think Mm -hmm. that's basically what the importance is here, is being transparent and getting rid of the politics involved of being put to one side or the other is the difficult part, you know what I mean? And that's also comes down to when it talks about um, um, racial issues, for example. Of course, I can be a white man talking. I can never reflect upon the experience of how it is to be an elderly black woman who is segregated because I cannot, how do you say, live that experience. And it's unfair to that, those people that I don't have that experience. But it's sort of difficult to then kind of, um, how do you say, reflect upon it. So I don't think I should be the one who should, you know what I mean? So there should be voice that is given to them. And I think this is one of the arguments of critical race theory. It's saying that we need to also give room to individuals, people on the other side, quote unquote, since everything's polarized now, to tell their sides of the story. Hence the Rex Crim show. And, uh, you know, I asked you a loaded question that is really meant to just play devil's advocate here because, um, please you, continue. I love you, it. Yeah. You just, you said it, um, eloquently and I'll, I'll put it succinctly. It's about nuance. Uh, you know, how, how is it that these camps can be, uh, so far from each other? I think of, uh, close family members, for example, of mine who have entirely different, uh, viewpoints and and I think much of that has to do with technology and the way information is shared. But I digress. I want to um, touch on. Uh, I want to just uh, um, make sense of what I mean when I say the idea of identity politics. Uh, you know, there's there's a difference between having a belief uh, about something and 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 what you go about doing for it. So I mean, indeed, uh, you can't express what it's like to be a black woman, for example, but you could certainly uh, try and you can certainly create uh, an opportunity to, you know, give voice there. And so that does matter. Um, So there's this idea between I, I, what I think versus what I am. And I, I, I would like to submit that people are a little too often adopting the belief uh, of of what they are, you know, I, like I, I am more than just a white man. Uh, I'm also informed. I also try to take the counter perspective. Um, so one of the criticisms of critical race theory or how it's being adopted, in my view, is this interesting uh, balance between what is within your control and what is beyond your control. And mm-hmm. that's a reoccurring theme when I talk to people on the Rex Crim show and people who are suffering and struggling in life, like incels um, or perhaps pedophiles or people who have been involved with the justice system or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, the, the, the most suffering comes from people who, who focus on, things outside of their control rather than having a, an internal locus of behavioral control that, Mm -hmm. that means, that means you have autonomy. You're able to, you're able to negotiate uh, certain aspects of your life. So, um, 
yeah, where do we go from here? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm now I'm rambling on, but I, I realized that um, maybe in haste when I reached out to you, I, I was enthralled with this story that was going on in the U.S. about uh, Gabby Petito. Oh yeah. Uh, and one of the things that came to light was this missing white woman syndrome uh, that the New York Times did a great article on. And it's true, um, you know, tying back to critical race theory and, and our fundamental understanding of criminology. I mean, here's one white woman. It's a travesty that's gone on. And I'm guilty of um, watch, looking at every sort of detail. Consuming all the media that is available to you. Exactly. You know, analyzing it, discussing it, reading about it. It's, it's kind of pathetic, especially in light of the fact I read an interesting statistic that, uh, you know, in the year that Gabby Petito went missing uh, in Wyoming, something like 700 plus indigenous women had gone missing and, and, you know, nothing yeah. was much said about that. I think so, I read the same article as yeah, you know, well, I, so I, I, it rings a bell. Yeah. What what uh, what do you make of um, of this idea of uh, the missing white woman syndrome, or more broadly, um, the idea of maybe uh, points, you know, uh, social points being awarded? So there's a valuation mm -hmm. of of certain lives being more important than others. Um, am I am I am I derailing here, or is that no? I know? wouldn't. I think I think there's two. Issue, well, not issues. I, I'm not going to say the word. There's two points here, which is, first of all, that it's nothing new. So this, how do you say, missing white woman syndrome, as you say, is not something that has only just popped up with the uh, Gary Petito case, but it's something that um, has existed for uh, decades uh, and decades with modern media, or, or how do you say, media since the 60s, 70s, etc. So it's nothing new, first of all. Um, second of all, I don't think that it's, um, I think that your second point that you just mentioned is are you derailing, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think you are because it's basically a reflection, first of all, of, um, what we've seen in our history, how things have come to form us today. And we can relate to critical race theory if we wanted to, in the sense of we take a stance now with certain things in modern times, that's more and more the case. But anyway, to go back to the first point, I think the reason why um, the reason it's uh, it's such a big thing, more or less, this white woman missing white woman syndrome, is because it reflects basically this rhetoric that we fueled within our Western society um, uh, implicitly and explicitly in other ways, basically about what what is valued within how do you say the female gender, basically, and that is basically if we can look into different things, advertising, if you can look into rhetoric, if you could look into stories, movies, etc., modeling, advertisements, all this huge array of different, how do you say, mediums, we can see that basically the stereotype of, how could we say, beauty, but of also of delicacy, of elegancy, of, um, how do you say, an image that needs to be protected and to be uh, cherished, quote-unquote, is of the, how do you say, the, the, the white young uh, female, pretty much. And I think this is basically just one of the manifestations with the the Gary Petito case of white uh, missing white woman syndrome, because we can also see it as I think you mentioned already. For example, in recruiting, etc., uh, we can see it in HR policies. So I think it's just another form of discrimination, and also as we're talking about critical race theory and racism in general, of how these um, minorities got a lot less attention because also there's a less appetite from the general public because the media caters to what sells pretty much 
there's less um, attention um, from the general public for people missing who come from different ethnic backgrounds, etc. Um, mm-hmm. I can't explain why. I'm not an expert. Well, I can have some ideas, but I can't explain exactly why that is. That would be a long history lesson that travels back for hundreds of years to get to where we are now. But I think the core issue here is that we can blame the media, we can point fingers at the media, but the issue is that we as society consume media, and the media is going to cater to what we want because what counts for them is getting views or selling papers, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I realize... Um uh, well, first and foremost, the, before I learned anything of the case, uh, and I think we will will trail off from talking about um, poor uh, Miss Petito. Um, although it's probably better to focus on the victim than the perpetrator in this case, mm-hmm. and the the suspect is is highly uh, uh, imagined to be her uh, her partner who's now missing, and um, uh, so the whole thing is sensational. But there is uh, from a criminological perspective there's certainly something to say about labeling here oh, and yeah. uh, this notion of um, um, the perfect victim narrative mm-hmm. uh, and and that was the first thing that came to mind when I saw this uh, uh, attractive um, slender white woman and this was the substance of conversation among my compatriots at work uh, we uh, we observed you know um, that you know, if it had been a different, um, if 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 she had been looked differently, uh, the story would have been probably very different. Yeah, of so, course. Yeah, I think, and I think it's reflected in uh, multiple news reports, which uh, go under the radar, don't receive as much uh, attention. And there's a, uh, I can't name any for you because that just goes to testify your point proven, pretty much. But um, how do you say? I know that there's um, plenty of these cases that go under the radar, and just just to testify that this is a is a thing, basically. Let's uh, talk about another issue. I, I want to unfold your earlier. You mentioned uh, this idea of discrimination, and I'm curious to see how you see politics bleeding into the order. You know, the everyday life, ordinary life. I know that your studies are focusing specifically on um, senior civil servants yeah. or bureaucrats. I think. Yeah, exactly. And, and and that then will trickle down in in the way policies are made and the way mm-hmm. it's going to play out in everyday life. But you could finish my last chapters for me. Well, I don't think so, but I'll be <laughs> glad to uh, to to read them and inquire further. Help me understand how politics are bleeding into everyday life, and in context of uh, what we saw with George Floyd in the U.S., for example, mm-hmm. and and uh, and the sentencing or the appetite for of pu- for punishment regarding the perpetrator of that violence. Uh, I think Derek Chauvin, the former yeah. police officer. Yeah, I think I think it's and this is once again just my personal thinking out loud opinions, etc., and just kind of trying to mull things over. Um, in my head while speaking out loud. But I think it's also a symptom of postmodernism, where we can see more and more that society is now being defined against certain lines, and people end up getting pushed to one side or the other. So this is reflected in different areas, such as socioeconomical status. So we hear more and more frequently the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer, for example. Um, that's not just the case uh, in the USA, but it's in multiple countries all around the world and global on a global level. It certainly is so when you see some of the billionaires now and uh, trillionaires and how much they, they own compared to the, uh, the, the poorest on earth, for example. Um, but it basically is just one way of saying that we can see now that individuals are more and more cast to one side or another, one extreme or another in multiple senses, be it an educational level, financially, as we just mentioned, or socioeconomically, um, when it comes to 
putting different cultural elements or trends within a certain box, for example. Now, instead of there being a trend which kind of bleeds into various things of society, it's called of label as, oh, this belongs to this group or this belongs to this group. There's a conversation we could have uh, about cultural appropriation that comes in, etc. But all in all, I believe that when we see these elements happening, it's nothing new. And politicization is just basically a manifestation of postmodern society becoming more and more polarized in multiple, on different fields, different fronts, pretty much. I was going to just ask you uh, to to um, unfold the concept of, like, describe postmodernism as a concept, oh, if you can. Geez. Or, so, or to <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, I'm just thinking about how we can operationalize. Yeah, this I can term. understand that. So basically, yeah. what we could say is we have a period of, uh, um, we could say modernism in which people's ideals, uh, how do you say, values, etc., uh, came from material. Um, how do you say, items, material desires, etc. And this is what we saw uh, after World War II. Also, um, we can roughly we could say what's well, before World War II, of course, but we could say. Individuals in more current um, decades were basically anchored within material beliefs. And now we can see with what we call postmodernism how um, this is kind of lost. This is kind of disappeared. And now individuals don't really uh, make sense or seek, how do you say, self-worth or their reason to be on earth, uh, how do you say, or uh, um, before we had religion and people would say, I'm on earth because I was born here and then I have to trust the word of God and believe and follow the words of my religion. And then that's how my life is successful. That's how I give meaning to my life. And then we had modernism, which kind of emphasized this in a more material way. So people kind of moved away from, um, how do you say, religion. And then they had this whole material world that was accessible. And then they kind of built it up that way. So you could focus on having a family, on going on holiday, on being seeking happiness from these via the means of other material beings. Uh, uh, items or in artifacts. But now we could say with postmodernism, we can see there's sort of a shift away from this attachment to uh, material items. And we're now in basically a search for what is the meaning of life? What is the sense of everything? And this is where we can see where a lot of things aren't as clear cut and we don't have these institutions in the broadest terms to kind of attach to. So for yeah. example, before you could attach to your work or identify yourself within your profession as it would be stable for 30, 40, 50 years, your whole career, whereas now with the gig economy, that's not the case, for example. Or before, with the availability and the speed of information, etc., you could hang on to certain ideas or great grand ideological streams, but now this kind of moves on to different thing because there's such a supply of constant supply of different ideas, different new trends, etc., that you kind of don't have anything to really anchor onto. And this is not a, a um, how do you say, a conscious process. Uh, it's mostly unconscious, but it kind of leads to a, how would you say, a sort of angst, basically, an anxiety of constantly soul searching. Could we could we map it out roughly to say something like the pre pre industrial area industrial area, and now we're in sort of you know past uh, this uh, time where we've become an information society. I'm trying to link to the idea of, um, of liquid modernity and mm -hmm. Zygmunt ba Bauman's idea exactly, where, yeah. you know, once upon a time people would congregate and, and build community through the church. Um, but institutions, including government uh, and the church, and these are melting away, so to speak. Uh, and so um, to your point, you know, this uh, angst, I, I mean, it's amazing when I talk to people now, there's such a, um, an appetite for a conspiracy. And I thought I was, uh, you know, I, I thought I was, 
conspiratorial in my critical thinking once upon a time, but there doesn't seem to be much of a framework about the way that ideas are floating. And I, I use, um, I, I started watching the HBO QAnon uh, series and then I had to turn it off because it was making me anxious, <laughs> but it, I, I realized that uh, the ideas that were floating around today, the way that people are getting their information is through a confluence of ideas. It's through me- memetics. Mm-hmm. It's through memes. Yeah. So people are learning uh, these days or getting their news through ideas that are stuck. Also guilty as charged. Yeah, we. I, I do it too. I say I'm not on social media, but I've been on Reddit more than I want to admit, uh, as I've disclosed and on this show before. And anyway, maybe we're getting too philosophical, but I, I, um, I wanted to stick with this idea of uh, discrimination in your yeah. mind, and we're, we're trying to uh, make sense of how it is that. As a consequence of the circumstances we find ourselves, um, polarization is occurring yeah, and people exactly. are finding themselves more and more distant uh, with with their belief system and, and how they identify. Yeah, exactly. So discrimination. Um, uh, in other examples, uh, I'm thinking about you know uh, migration these days, uh, which is happening all around the world. Where do you see this idea of nationalism and, and uh, discrimination being um, involved there? I think that this is, how do you say, for me, it's a difficult question to answer, um, basically because my academic background hasn't focused on this as much. And second of all, from a personal point of view, as someone with two nationalities, it makes a difficult question for me to, to kind of position myself, since I don't really have any personal, personally, any kind of sense of nationalism to one country or another. And I personally think this whole nationalistic idea is kind of rubbish, quote-unquote, but that's my personal view. But that put aside, um, there are more, how do you say, that's taken more neutral stance and not based on my own personal views. You hear more and more about this retreat of what we call the nation-state, um, how do you say, in recent decades, where now nation-states in themselves are becoming less strong, solid entities, and people identify themselves with one um, as it stands. However, on the other hand, I feel like that is sort of coming back or has come back over the previous um, decades, be it in certain shapes or forms. If I just look towards, how do you say, the USA after 911, I'm pretty sure that really solidified a sense of nationalism uh, in various ways. And the USA in itself could be, how do you say, uh, called a pretty nationalistic country in itself, such as others around the world, like Thailand, uh, Japan, etc. They've got this very strong sense of nationality, which all countries have to a certain degree. But yeah, um, I'm probably sidestepping now from your question, but I think that this sense of nationality is very much something within discrimination that plays a core role. And Corona has just accentuated this even more, where now we can see the closure of borders, cutting it off when it came to the vaccine rollout, countries not wanting to share the, the how do you say, uh, vaccines with their neighbors who were in need for certain things because it was us before them. We need to protect our own first, as uh, as you hear, etc. Um, why is it a global issue? Corona, so talking about Corona, for example. And the only way to sort out this issue is if it's tackled on all fronts simultaneously, because not just by a disease doesn't adhere to um, boundaries if there's no uh, solid closed off border. I mean, it's fine if you're Japan or New Zealand or the UK, perhaps, where you've got a sea separating you and you can close it. But for example, when it comes to the USA, who shares land borders with a huge country to the north, which you may be familiar with, and another one to the south, 
um, or any European country, yeah, this nationalistic idea kind of um, comes to kind of fuel this uh, discriminatory practices. So, uh, yeah, I find nationalism a tough subject, if I'm honest, because it's hard to wrap your head around. Yeah, although it makes sense to me if we agree that, you know, um, um, in the modern era, things were stable and there was some sense of security. And in the postmodern era, things have become liquidized. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it seems like in that angst, people are trying to grab onto something yeah. and, uh, and it makes sense, you know, the, that, that you should identify with a certain, uh, the, you know, you know, if you're in America, for example, then <laughs> you, you want to, uh, you know, hold on to that. Or if I, I reflect on, um, a few months ago in July, we celebrated it, uh, celebrated Canada Day. Oh, I still have a beautiful baseball you got me can, with Canada prize prize uh, position on my uh, mantelpiece. Good. Well, I'm glad that you take such pride in it because it was uh, I, it was uh, it's become a, a bit of a question now. Certainly, with the idea of um, uh, truth and reconciliation and the uh, the uh, the need for observation about observances about our past and uh, I reflect on uh, wishing someone a happy Canada Day um, uh, in July when uh, when we were celebrating this year, and they they sort of um, they they said something back that gave me pause, and um, and it's true. I mean, what is it that we're indeed celebrating? Um, uh, yeah. you, know, and, you know, and I wake up uh, today and on. Truth and Reconciliation Day, and uh, this is not something to say. You know, I'm not going out and saying Happy Truth and Reconciliation Day. <laughs> no, uh, this is this is a, a somber moment. So, uh, yeah, there's there's some questions, uh, and rightfully so, about you know, recon- indeed reconciling this, no, and I, and that that's happening for me interpersonally, and I think it's happening on a state level and in our great nation. Um, I think this, if I can intervene quickly, I think this leads back beautifully to the notion of uh, critical, because we were talking in the beginning about critical race theory, and perhaps some um, aren't familiar with what it is, but there's not just one theory, like critical race theory isn't the only critical theory out there, and there's a whole array, more than you could ever count or even want to count about critical perspectives on anything, for example. But critical just refers back to basically... Uh, instead of looking at the individual level, so in critical race theory, looking at individual will be racist in things they say or the way they behave towards people of a different uh, ethnicity, etc. The critical part is looking at the structures and institutions within society that kind of fuel or push towards uh, this racism. So to zoom back to this notion of critical, um, if we were to look critically at, for example, nationality, as you would say here with Canada Day and your national holiday, and someone was to basically shoot you down when you said, happy Happy Canada Day, for example, it kind of led you to pause and think like, yeah, what is this notion to think critically? What is these structures that is Canada as we are celebrating within this day? Like, what is it? Is it the fact that we uh, became united as one or that's a rhetoric that's pushed by politics? Is it because we all identify with certain national dishes, for example, or is it because we speak one of two languages and that is recognized or because we've got a border that separates us from another piece of land, for example. I think that's really what is a good question when it comes to national uh, nationalism or nationality. What is it exactly? What makes you a nationality? To think critically. Yeah, I think I remain uh, I remain 
you know, amenable to different perspectives. And, and that's the uh, true essence of, uh, of critical thinking, I think, to situate yourself on the side of, uh, of the other that you're less comfortable with. Yeah. Um, and this is a conversation uh, that people can stay tuned for that I'll be having again with my mother in the near future. Oh, those are, those are such good episodes. I can't wait. Well, the quality is going to be far better for this one. And the conversation is going to be about, uh, about vaccines. And oh, um, interesting. So, yeah. So where uh, two of us, uh, the two of us will probably likely at the end have to yet again, agree to disagree. <laughs> so, but all, all the more need to uh, to have these types of conversations and um, and you know explore perspectives divergent from our own. Uh, I want to pose the question to you. I'm reflecting on a few episodes ago with uh, my friend Guy, who's in the Netherlands, and he's a, a true oh, Dutchman, as as you're uh, slowly but surely uh, becoming. I think um, this this very concept of short to Piet. Uh, which is kind of relevant oh, and upcoming yep. for yeah in the in the months to come. You're you're still sort of an outsider because you're not uh, true Dutch, I think. But uh, but you've certainly assimilated to a certain degree. Yeah. Uh, explain short to Pete and your perspective on it. So uh, I'm not sure what you discussed already with your friend Guy um, um, about it because he's Dutch himself. You said and you discussed short to Pete, but um, to lay it out there, basically. The Dutch, um, on the 5th of December, they don't celebrate Christmas uh, the same way that we would do in, in, in Canada, the USA, the UK, etc., etc. They rather have their festivities on the 5th of December, in which they have the St. Nicholas, who comes on a boat from Spain with some helpers to all the different houses in the Netherlands to deliver uh, presents to children. So it's kind of the Santa Claus in the Netherlands, but it's on the 5th of December rather than the 25th. And uh, Svarte Piet, oh. we would call we would call that Sinterklaas, is that right? Sinterklaas, or, yeah, exactly, yeah. Sinterklaas, yeah. So very similar to Santa Claus. Perhaps Santa Claus comes from Sinterklaas. I'm not sure. Maybe it's vice versa. I have no clue. But yeah, that's Sinterklaas, which is basically the uh, uh, the character, the individual who comes and brings presents to uh, to the children. Um, but yeah, he's accompanied by helpers, which they call in the Netherlands Svarte Piet, which which means Black Piet. Peter's in the name for, uh, as a first name, like Peter. Um, and what's very controversial for the past years in the Netherlands is that um, when uh, when Sinterklaas comes to the Netherlands, it's a televised uh, event, of course. So there's one, how do you say, uh, Sinterklaas who comes and it's broadcast on TV, etc., for the children to watch. And he comes with his helpers, etc. And also, if you go to any city center or shopping center or whatever little shopping mall, you'll see also a Sinterklaas with his Black Pete helpers. But for past years, um, since the tradition began up until recently, uh, Svarte Piet was literally, um, um, how do you say, white men and women with blackface. So basically they would have the black painted faces put on, they would have red lipstick, the golden earrings, etc. And what the debate has been in the Netherlands for the past few years is how uh, racially insensitive this is to uh, individuals um, who come from um, different ethnic backgrounds within the Netherlands, reflecting upon their history, colonization, etc. And how it's a racist depiction, basically, of um, of these ethnic um how do you say these ethnicities that came to live in the Netherlands, pretty much? And um, yeah, I'm kind of droning on now, but basically, Svarte Piet is uh, Santa Claus's helper, and it's basically, um, yeah, depicted by white individuals with blackface. So there's a huge discussion around it about the racism behind it because of individuals who uh, find it offensive. 
Um, I'm not sure if you want my personal opinion or not, but I personally do think it's extremely offensive. Uh, the first time, maybe you saw it because we studied at the same time in the Netherlands, we moved at the same time. So maybe you saw it in December or you were in Canada or something for Christmas, but I didn't know it was a thing. I'd never heard of it before. I just assumed Christmas is Christmas. And then I saw these people walking around town. I was like, holy shit, what's happening here? What is this normal? What or? the Christ is going on? It was yeah. so peculiar. I was there and That's... I'm sure it was the, the topic of critical discussion at the, uh, at our, um, uh, you know, study sessions. Um, um, oh, yeah, I, that's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, folks who listen to the show know that I we studied together in uh, in at Utrecht uh, in the Netherlands, and uh, it's quite a sight, especially when you're not expecting it. To see white people walking around town with black It's quite a sight, but it was not the conversation in 2014, 2015 when uh, when I was there that it was uh, that it is now. I, in fact, I think uh, like Vox or one of these uh, documentary things on Netflix that I love to watch did an episode on Schwartz Pete re- more recently, and I thought, oh, you know how uh, how yeah. how great, uh, you know, and. So it's curious that you and I are having this conversation. You've got more insight into it living there than, than, than I did. You know, I'm more of an outsider, I guess. But um, the, the conclusion with my Dutch friend, Guy, is that, you know, indeed it is racist. And, um, but the challenge is that, you know, it's also a tradition. And people who, yeah, I mean, there were youngsters running around. I, I seem to remember kids uh, in the streets, um, black, you know, in blackface and, and now the um, the sort of defense uh, for it not being racist is that it's just soot uh, from the fireplace, of, you know that that yeah. that uh, Black Pete would have acquired on his way down, on his but way down the chimney. It, that fails to observe the bigger issue here. And uh, exactly. so let's you know how do we tie this into critical race theory? I mean, does that mean to say the tradition needs to be lost altogether, or can we enjoy it? while still you know being mindful of its past i mean i I don't know i I think this is a a good way and this is a debate that's been in the netherlands for years basically about um how do we preserve a tradition but how do you say get rid of uh, the racism or the elements that could be that are culturally insensitive and that can offend people basically and to tie it back to um critical race theory it's kind of looking at the institution and here we'll say the institution within this um within this uh, festivity, this, um, how do you say this, uh, this event basically, uh, is the tradition in itself, the tradition of Svarte Pete. We'll call that the institution here. Mm-hmm. And I would say that it is very much culturally insensitive and racist in itself as a standalone. That doesn't mean people who follow it are necessarily racists. This is something that I want to kind of break away from because in America it's sort of seen as critical race theory makes everyone who is white says everyone who is white is a racist pretty much so what i'm trying to get away from here we'll say that the tradition itself is founded upon racist grounds or is racist nowadays because with age how things have aged over time um and this is why you can see for example as you just mentioned with your friend that some people or some uh, municipalities have tried to tone this down by saying the blackface doesn't come from the fact that he uh, that he or she, the Black Pete, was a slave taken from wherever it was in the Dutch colonies and brought over and caricaturized. So with the red lipstick and then the golden earrings, etc., and all these, uh, how do you say, exaggerated uh, personal traits, but it is from the soot that comes from the chimney. But then this also received a few years ago a lot of criticism saying, well, why it doesn't look like soot. So now you see municipalities, for example, where the blackface is gone and they've got kind of like, how do you say, something that look more like soot, like, um, how do you say, just some black pads 
put how, how can I explain it? As if they've just dotted black powder along the face. So it looks more like soot than actually just being fully black faced. And you also see now uh, rainbow faced peat, which is another attempt to basically change it. So instead of seeing black face, you see completely yellow, completely blue, completely pink, etc in an attempt to kind of move away. And also, which I haven't mentioned before, is that the Peets would traditionally wear very much colonial-style clothing. So uh, for anyone who is perhaps familiar with this, uh, who's seen anything to do with the Netherlands before, they kind of had these huge collars, the Dutch. If you've seen these classic paintings of theirs, they had big collars and things like that. So that's what also the uh, the Black Peets would be wearing. So there's kind of been a move away from that. So it doesn't look like colonial clothing, but it's more, for example, jester uh, uh, kind of um, clothes because the Svartepeet also, in his personality, which is also a racial component we didn't talk to, is supposed to be a bit naive, a little bit childish, a little bit of a clown, um, stupid in, in certain aspects, and that also ties into this racial element about it. So, um, yeah, to step back to your question, because I'm droning on, basically, as I keep doing, um, I would say that, yeah, there's a racial component to it, and then this whole other side of the debate is, yeah, but it's tradition, why, to tie back to postmodernism and to modernity, why do we have to get rid of all these, um, how do you say, traditions, why is everything seen as racist now, uh, why does everyone think that we're racist just because we believe in what we've been told to believe in for these centuries, and now when we do believe it and share it to our children, we're racist, etc., and I think that is just also... Um, Black Asphalt Beat is just, once again, another manifestation or another, we could say, battlefield, quote-unquote, of where all these issues um, of postmodernity and this fluidity and changing, etc., is taking place. Because changes are taking place, and they need to for various things in various places, various discussions, etc., but that doesn't change for people who believe it, that changing from one day to another can be difficult, especially if you as a child celebrated this festivity every single year and it was seen as a party and something you look forward to and always good memories and all of a sudden they say all those childhood memories you had actually were racist and you were taking part in a horrible thing uh, which makes you a horrible person quote unquote that is kind of a trauma to then kind of move away from it and it kind of reinforces you into this thing of well I wasn't racist. I was just taking part in it because that's how it was. But anyway, I'm droning on now. I could go on for ages. Don't don't but. worry. I mean, droning on these, uh, you know, these converse. It's about conversation, and that's how conversations go. And uh, I did not expect us when we set out to talk about whatever the hell critical race theory is um, um, to be talking again about Schwartz to Pete. But it se- it seems entirely relevant. Or postmodernism again. Yes. I wonder, uh, so there was two points that I wanted to branch off. The first of which, concluding maybe on Schwartz of Pete, is uh, you're with a Dutch woman. Uh, you know, ostensibly you're, you're meeting with her family. I mean, what, what, what are the conversations like around the dinner table? Uh, are you agreeing to disagree on certain things? No, absolutely not. We're all firmly in the same stance, which is, how do you say, Schwartz of Pete has to be changed because, um, um, how do you say, the depiction as it is now, or classically the traditional ones, I said in some places it's changing slowly to multicolored faces, other traits, etc., is that the point of view that we tend to have is if it's offensive, it's racist, etc., people offended to it, change it. Because their argument is basically, yeah, but it's a, how do you say, kinderfaced, a party for the children. So don't ruin this whole thing for the children. It's sort of like a child, if you change the, how do you say, tradition now, that child is going to grow up with that being the norm. So they're not going to be traumatized by it. The issue is actually, ironically, with the parents and the grandparents who are trying to maintain this tradition because 
that was their happy memories. But a child, as long as you make it a fun event and you take away all this political side to it, um, it's not going to make a change. Uh, it's not going to traumatize a child or anything like that. So our point of view is basically get rid of the racist parts. It's a racist, um, how do you say, uh, festivity in the way that it was implemented and still celebrated today. That doesn't mean people who believe in it are racists. That's what I want to emphasize. I'm not saying that if you believe it, if you follow Sergeant Pete, that makes you inherently a racist person, but the tradition in itself is. So we don't have any disagreements on the, um, how do you say, around the dinner table. We just kind of take the stance of, wow, it would be nice if some municipalities actually did take a stance uh, because this debate is something that comes back every single year that has, it's one of those wicked issues as we call it. It doesn't have a solution. You're not going to make any everyone happy. So this is the problem with it. And this is why you can see in the media. And when you brought it up earlier, I kind of groaned when I said, oh yes, fight to beat because we're about to set ourselves up as of next month for a constant three months of every single talk show the debate pro and con etc and it just is at a standstill for the next for the past three four years i'm uh i'm i'm planning well in advance uh the schedule for the rex crim show this will be released i'm sure before uh november oh we should have one uh, we should have it on the 5th of december if not another talk about the spot i can give you the updates and uh, everything if you're interested you can report you'll be my uh my uh, correspondent uh, on the ground in in uh in the Netherlands. I guess I'm wondering about things that you might disagree with uh, around the dinner table as a side uh, sidestep in our conversation. Uh, are there philosophical disagreements that you and your um, sweetheart have or, or, um, or are you more or less seeing, I mean, there must be things that you disagree with. Yeah, there definitely are things we disagree with, but that's usually with um, what constitutes a, a clean floor or um, what constitutes an, a, <laughs> a normal time to get home or whatever that sort of stuff because how do you say as you know we met at the same place like the three of us studied together so we basically had the same uh academic how do you say um upbringing if you'd like to say we kind of read the same theories the same books so i wouldn't say there's any huge disagreements between us on that sort of philosophical or academic uh uh, how you say principle moral ground in that sense sure not only that comes to mind at least i want to uh, very 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 good uh, alex well done i think you must do very well <laughs> with the uh with the uh, civil servants and being able to couch your responses uh, uh on either side of any diplomats yeah very diplomatic and i see you're uh, exercising the full tact in this conversation too <sighs> Uh, on the topic of studying and uh, and our little circle of cultural criminologists, uh, you know, the Rex Crim Show is recruiting people, and I've been reaching out to folks uh, from the from our class and from the program currently. So I'm planning the seed with you, Alex, and maybe we can do a shout out. I have not been uh, successful getting a a substantive response from our friend Dan. I've been in touch with Leah, who's who's busy. I've been in touch with Damian. In fact, and all people uh, that I'd, I'd love to have on the show, um, uh, who, you know, Maurice uh, also, um, f- you know. Th- Martin. Martin might be an interesting, yeah. Who else comes to mind? Uh, I wonder Dina You're herself. Looking for people to have on the show to, to uh, shoot the breeze about criminology, critical criminology. While, you know, while the Rex Crim show is uh, focusing on divergent perspectives and, you know, touching uh, well, maybe touching the lives or, or communicating with people who are impacted by the system. I, I also think it's important to take that philosophical level of abstraction and to connect with, um, 
you know, uh, people who can, who have frameworks for understanding these tough issues. So yeah, yeah, criminologists in general, uh, maybe offline, you can also put me in touch. I don't know if you're, if you are in touch with them, but there were two students that you pointed me in the direction of. uh, Oh yeah. uh, From the criminologue. Yeah. Yeah. Podcast. Yeah. So I I think maybe I'll reach out to them next. That'll be the next step. Um, But uh, if you're listening to this and in, in, Definitely to my friend, Dan, our mutual friend, uh, you can point him in the direction, Alex, because I want him on here. I want his opinion on all sorts. He, uh, how do you say he, the, viewer, the listeners can't see, but I was pointing to my phone. He, he literally messaged me just this morning. So I am in contact with him. So I'll, uh, I'll do, I'll, uh, I'll reeling it, reel him in for you. Yeah. That, marvelous. Yeah. God love, uh, you. That'll be interesting to get a perspective from the UK, uh, as well and to catch up with him also. So I want to kind of uh, take a more um, take a higher abstraction here, you know, in imagining. Good luck after talking about postmodernism. Well, imagining where we're going in life, you know, I think uh, the idea of cultural criminology and what I'm excited about, and, and hopefully my, pursuing my studies in in uh, in the near future, is it's all about qualitative perspectives in my mind it's about subjectivities so you know just uh hopefully concluding on short to Pete once and for all or the idea of racism um you know i i think that there are ideologies out there that are that 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 are based on um aspects of racism but i i i give caution to truncating it down to the simple label of calling someone a racist. I think you can have a nuanced perspective and, and appreciate, um, uh, appreciate the, the harms uh, from a wider level of abstraction and still uh, participate in the tradition of Schwartz of Pete without being a racist per se. Cool. And that goes for all, you know, for all categories. So I, I wanted to ask your question about this, you know, is there a sense in your mind that we are, you know, describe this idea of sort of trying to neatly fit things into categories. I think there's something I was going to bring up with the Svarte Pete one. Um, So I'm going to go back to it quickly. It might not answer your question completely, but you're talking about categories. And when we're saying about the Svarte Pete, you kind of have those who call the tradition or this party as racist and the others who support the tradition and still celebrate it every year. Um, But we have on the campus I work at for the University of Groningen is in the city of Leovarda. And Leovarda is in the province of Friesland, right next to Groningen. Long story short, it's a, outside of the city, it's a very rural province. So there's a lot of, um, how do you say, farms, etc., farmland. It's a large part of the population. And also Friesland has its own language. And it's very much recognized in Dutch history as being a bit of a more independent sort of uh, region that strive for independence, etc. But anyway, there is a lady in Friesland called Jenny Dowers. And Jenny Dowers um, was one of the guest lectures at the course I teach on comparative political systems uh, this year and the previous year. And she is basically staunchly for pro Svartepeet, as it is. So we kind of invite her as a guest because it's kind of good to show, as you were talking about earlier, different perspectives. We kind of show to our students who are all uh, mostly anti Svartepeet, um, the other side of the story, so that we don't just label people who are pro as racist and to try to understand what are their arguments, etc. What are their, how do you say, their processes to kind of rationalize when they hear all this stuff and provided these arguments that it's racist, what goes through their minds to still support it, more or less. And um, what we notice is that Jenny Dowers uh, 
has become the unofficial, basically, representative of the pro Svartopit movement, so those who are for Svartopit, and uh, she's got a lot of followers, etc. Um, and basically, we can see that most of them come from rural areas, pretty much. And we can see a very clear division within, I wouldn't just say the Netherlands, but at least in the Netherlands, between those who support Svartopit and those who are against Svartopit, as the tradition as it stands today with the blackface, etc., and uh, this just goes so to talk about categories, how we can see nowadays that things might not be always as, as they appear. So we could say Svartopit is either you're racist or you're not racist or whatever, but we can see it's very much based and anchored within these different categories if we look into a different lens, let's say. So here we're looking into socioeconomical background. Most of these people come from areas which have not been exposed to as much multiculturalism, to cosmopolitanism, etc., such as you'd see in Amsterdam or the bigger cities, etc. I think this is what comes down to, uh, in the sense of categories, is that you can see that um, you have to be aware that things aren't always as they seem, and it depends on the lens that you look at things at, pretty much. I can't remember your exact question now. I went drawing right. on it. I, I, I was also thinking out loud. I asked about... Uh, you know how you make sense of uh, categories, but that, but but you've touched on it well, and I'm not sure my question was that well uh, formulated. I I'm observing this sort of um, desire people have, and a a um, to put things in boxes. Yeah, and uh, and I would describe that as you know making segments. You know, I've I've said in the past, people you know are limited to however many characters in a tweet, or you know mm. compartmentalized one or the other. Um, you know, we're living in a time of calculability, it seems, and so uh, people want to objectify. You know, it's not yep. like you can be on the fence with short to Pete. It's you're either one or the other, and one means racist, one yep. means the other, or one one means not uh, racist, and and I'm not. I I don't think that's, I just don't see life in that way. Yeah, I, I completely, I think that this is also what we were talking about earlier about like with the politicization of things, etc. but also because things are fluid, things are more moving, uh, fl- how do you say, as Bauman said, fluid, etc. moving. I think it's just, an, how do you say, the segmentation or the categorization is just, how do you say, uh, an unconscious remedy that we have as, as human beings, basically, to kind of make sense of things. Mm -hmm. If everything is gray and nothing is black or white, I mean, it'd be very difficult to live our lives if we had to constantly question, okay, is eating an apple uh, a day, for example, uh, actually a good thing? There's certain things that we just end up categorizing and to say, this is good to do, this is bad to do, or this is positive, this is negative, or this should be done, this shouldn't be done, however you want to frame it. And I think that this is just an attempt as things become less and less certain, things become more and more complex, there's deeper levels to stuff, there's th- uh, different debates, etc. I think it's just a, a reaction that we have. It's like, now we're going to categorize stuff, or we're going to polarize things, for example. So you're going to take a clear stance or the other, just because it's a lot easier to do that. And you know that if you do that, you're going to find people who support you in that thinking. So it just makes things a lot easier to make sense of the world. That's my opinion, but I could be wrong. Yeah, that's I mean, it, I it, it. It, it remind, it's like in psychology with uh, what they call heuristics. I mean, stereotypes uh, yeah. stereotypes work. I mean, they they make um, you know uh, they make understanding life uh, practical because you know they're 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 easy to refer to. They're patterns. Uh, for yeah. quickly understanding a trend or something like that. Um, in Canada, we recently underwent a, a, what they call a snap election, uh, 
the the uh, oh yeah, I heard about the, that. Yeah, yeah the prime minister again. No, the prime minister. Uh, yeah, there was criticism about him throwing in, uh, you know, throwing out, calling an election much earlier than uh, expected, mm. and in the end, the result was that uh, you know he did not win a majority government. He just ended up in a minority uh, in the same uh, mm. circumstances that he was before. After six hundred million dollars was spent on this election, you oh, know, people. Pe- People are scratching their heads, uh, wondering, you know, for what reason. Uh, obviously, the political, um, you know, no doubt uh, Trudeau's advisors were, uh, you know, encouraging him to pursue an election because they felt they were in a good position to win a majority, but that wasn't the case. The point mm-hmm. that I'm trying to make is is about populism. And there was a rise in, uh, in one particular independent, um, the PPC, People's Party of Canada, and uh, the the person behind this party um, has been criticized, and you know I'm I'm still on the fence. I was reading their uh, their platform. I mean, they have a very um, they, they their perspective is sort of um, not conducive to allowing immigration. They are entirely it would seem the platform is focused on um, you know individuals rights uh, with regards to vaccines and so uh, you alluded to it earlier with the counter perspective of this woman her, uh, her name's escaped me who came to talk about Schwartz Pete but we're we're, yeah, we're Jenny now broaching on the top Jenny Dowis so the topic of populism uh, help make sense of what that means to you what is populism in politics so populism uh, in its broadest term is basically, um, how do you say, just this notion of being against the elite. That's basically what populism comes. So giving power back to the people and against the elite. So that's at the core of the definition, as at least we teach it in our class. And there's a lot of big academics in the field that, that, that kind of ascribe to this. But populism is kind of a bit more complex than that. And there's multiple nuances to it, etc. But we can kind of see it morphing into now, um, how do you say, political movements which basically claim that um, the elites that's been in power, so the establishment, we could say, that's been in power for the past years, etc., uh, doesn't have your best interests at heart, doesn't have your, how do you say, um, yeah, doesn't have your best interests at heart, and basically this needs to be stopped so that your true interests can actually be represented. And that's basically done through, an how do you say, an array of various complex mechanisms, for example, such as through rhetoric, through manipulating certain uh, images to send certain targeted framed, um, how do you say, messages that you want to out there, etc., which we won't get into all the details because it's another discussion for another time. But basically what it comes down to is that populism is this way of putting um, uh, me versus you, and usually it's me, the people, versus the elite, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And, and is this, uh, do you, I mean, my understanding is that populism is sort of of concern. Um, where do you see populism fitting in terms of empirical research and evidence-based uh, policies? So this is, how do you say, a, g- a great question and not one that I would be the most suited to respond to, for example, but... You're, I'm um, only looking for your opinion. You're, you know, I'm not yeah, looking yeah, yeah. for the ex- right That's or wrong. That's all you're going to get. Good. 
<laughs> but um, I would say it depends very much on the policy at hand, but it goes into uh, people who are going to listen to this are going to think, oh, God, here it goes again, talk about polarizing, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, basically, it just goes to feed into echo chambers. You know what I mean? And once again, this idea of being 100% right or 100% wrong and then not being a nuanced zone in between. But the dangers of it is that you can feed people what they want to hear. You can tell them what they want to hear. You can give them this comforting background to say, listen, if you follow us, you are right. Everything you think is right. If you follow us, we'll take care of everything. Everything is going to be fine. Whereas the reality is things aren't that simple. If you look at Brexit, for example, in the Brexit um, referendum in 2016, this was a lot of rhetoric that was done, for example, whereas the elite, quote unquote, was framed as the bureaucrats in Brussels, as they said, more or less, and the people were framed as you, the British people, especially you targeted at you, the more, how do you say, those working who were class. from working class, exactly, who had a more, um, how do you say, technical background than a theoretical one, etc. They were seen as those who were being exploited by the elite and look what we could happen if we were to leave we take that money back that we give and we could invest it in what you need for example etc etc um and i think that the problem is that these are promises that are made most of the time i'm not saying all the time because populism isn't inherently a bad thing and we can get onto that afterwards if you like but in certain if it's abused for example then basically it um it comes down to people who are being made these promises of a better life, of better opportunities, etc., are actually uh, having the complete inverse happen to them. And uh, there was a case which came up recently in the, in the British newspapers, like maybe three weeks ago. I can't remember the town, but a certain town which, since Brexit, which was a bit more of an impoverished town with a high unemployment rate, etc., since Brexit, uh, lost its EU funding for it, and it went from receiving something like... 20 million a year down to 2 million or something like that. So 10 times less income per year or something like that. And these people were sort of like, okay, well, this isn't what we voted for. And they basically were sold a lie, more or less. So, but anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, there's such, uh, there's such, I mean, the shenanigans that are happening in, uh, in, in, in states all across the world i mean i see a, there seems to be a rise in authoritarianism and mm -hmm. um i i wonder if uh people are sort of giving up their um i yeah i don't know i i, I in my view is that you know populism seems to resonate with those who haven't uh haven't spent much time exploring uh the other perspective it seems to resonate with them and i really like how you use the term echo chamber here which is something mm -hmm. that I, I i refer to uh when i look at news feeds and so when i i uh not to pick on my mom here but since she's going to be coming back on and this is a an ongoing discussion she and i have she uh she and i were speaking this week and um you know and and i'm trying to convey this idea of um, not wanting to affirm your own perspective, but to try to disprove your own perspective. You know, the, the subject of science came up and how science can be wrong, uh, you know, was, was a point, uh, uh, was a point, you know, in favor oh, of populism. Yeah. I thought it was so interesting. And I said, but the point of science is about falsification. It's about trying to prove your, you know, trying to prove your, your own hypotheses wrong. You mm -hmm. know, uh, so, um, yeah, I, I I don't know. There's an issue. I'm I'm thinking of uh, is it in who the hell is it? Uh, Balsario. 
uh, is one person that's coming to mind. I, I can't remember which country he's in, but I should. Brazil? Some, yeah, Brazil. And there's yeah. one also in. Uh, Bolsonaro. Yeah, who the hell is it in uh, Eastern Europe? Uh, and he's. Uh, Orban in Hungary? Yeah, I mean. Is that Orban? Yeah, the stories that I'm hearing about of the descendant uh, journalists where they've taken a plane down. I mean, can you touch on that for a minute? Do you have opinions of... of I'm not sure. Is this um, taking a plane down? I'm not sure. Is they, this with uh, Ukraine a few years ago who shot down the Malaysian flight? No, no, not. They didn't shoot no. it down. There was uh, some mis- oh, Belarus. Yeah, and the, right, and the poor... The poor young journalist had uh, had been, you know, escorted. They they yeah. had, yeah. Explain this. Explain this. Yeah, I just I only followed the news feeds briefly about it, but basically, where there was a flight from, I can't remember where, somewhere within Europe, up to I think they were going to uh, Lithuania or Latvia. I think they were going to Latvia, basically in a in northeastern Europe, more or less. And as they were doing so, they received from uh, when they were over Belarusian uh, airspace. And for those who don't know, Belarus is probably the last dictatorship in Europe, more or less. Uh, although that's questionable now, and you can see some of the authoritarian leaders we've been getting in other countries. But anyway, uh, when they were in Belarusian airspace, they received a message on uh, tower control saying that they had to land immediately because there was a suspect of um, a bomb threat or terrorism or something on the flight. And although the flight was very close to Vilnius, and it would have been there within 20 minutes, uh, protocol requires that when it's the case, you have to divert to the airport that it was called from. So they headed out to, I can't remember where it was, but a city in Belarus, more or less, they landed, and when they did, police came on board, and it was just to arrest a Belarusian uh, journalist who was on board, who was basically opposing the uh, the dictator, or the, how do you say, the regime, the political regime in place. And so she, I think it was a she, I can't remember, or he it was, was a arrested. young man. Yeah, yeah that was a he, yeah. He was uh, taken off and imprisoned, and then the plane um, was allowed to continue its journey onto Vilnius, but the main issue here uh, well, main issue. There's lots of issues, such as um, subjugating a plane to how do you say completely divert just for a political reason, etc. There's a whole other one about Aryan law. Well, how do you say aviation space law, etc. But anyway, yeah, it was basically a demonstration of how far uh, politicians are taking it now to silence journalists, which is a worrying trend. Yeah, this idea of uh, preempting dissent and uh, what I would see as a decline in democracy, yeah. um, and you know, I, I think we're very fortunate in Canada to to be able to, you know, refer to ourselves as a liberal democracy. Yeah. Uh, but that is not going to last without active uh, involvement. No. Uh, and and so where we make the link, help me make the link between authoritarianism and populism. So basically, this is a great question, which is a lot of studies have been done. Uh, you just said this decline in democracy. With my students, we discuss this notion of democratic backsliding, which is when you would have, let's say, a liberal democracy, as you just mentioned, such as Canada or the UK or uh, Germany or whatever you want to call it, and how it slowly becomes <clears throat> more and more author authoritarian in diverse ways, for example. Um, but anyway, populism... Um, and how it could be linked to authoritarianism is that it depends how it is abused and how the rhetoric is framed, more or less. So you can kind of have, for example, if we look into Turkey, for example, with the rise of uh, Erdogan, the current president, um, he started off basically as a populist movement where he called out to the more rural, how do you say, um, on the Asian side of Turkey, more, how do you say, working class people who were more, uh, how do you say, Muslim. He kind of 
had this rhetoric about uh, Turkey becoming less Muslim, etc., how the beliefs and the traditions were, uh, how do you say, fading away. So he gained a lot of support, etc., in his power, in his party, um, and won the elections, I don't know how long ago, probably 10, 15 years ago now, whatever it was. But anyway, that started off as a populist movement framing the us versus them, the elites who are taking away corruption, etc. We need to sort things out because of all this money that's going to corrupt bureaucrats, etc., I'm going to change things. But we can see in his case that as he so slowly was in power, and this is what we also talk about in with my students in class, is that authoritarianism isn't just something that happens from one day to the next. It creeps in in diverse manners. And I think, that, for example, um, um, we saw in Poland a couple, I think about a year ago, where all of a sudden the Supreme Court judges, I think we talked about this by email actually, Supreme Court judges in Poland who were therefore replaced instead of those who had track record of being lawyers, judges, who had basically experienced working in the legal domain and observing and analyzing legal texts, etc., and making laws, etc. Instead of giving the position to them, it was basically given to sympathizers of the president and the political party. And this is kind of an example of how do you say, well, authoritarian government is settling in because you're now giving the position to people who are going to agree with you so that when you pass laws that you want, they're going to get accepted. And then you can kind of control sort of like a puppet master sort of way but anyway that doesn't mean that populism and authoritarianism populism is necessary and uh how do you say a negative thing populism can also be used for good for example for fighting corruption etc or all these um, different elements but the way that it can be used it can be used as a tool to move towards authoritarianism Thank you for thank you thank you for uh, obliging me. What kind of a host? Uh, what kind of a show is this? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a terrible guest because uh, every meeting I also have at campus, sort of like, okay, let's take two minutes breather to mull this over. But it's just because I need to take a I need to piss my pants if not. <laughs> I'm mindful that with the time difference, I'm uh, sucking back coffee, and you're about to, you're probably approaching time for your first beer, I guess. Yeah, definitely going to crack one open yeah. afterwards. Finish my last tea of the day. Yeah. Well, um, you're um, you're a man of many identities, I guess. People, you know, as we touched on in the first uh, episode uh, earlier, uh, you know, your your accent is deceiving. Um, um, you know, of, of French uh, heritage uh, and you know, uh, of British culture, and now in uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, with in the lowlands in, yeah in the lowlands with uh with a keen interest in global criminology and and a globe trotter as well so i i recall meeting in uh, north america and hear of your adventures in the u.s and i can't wait till we can um make it happen finally meet up yeah in, in, i heard that they're opening borders with the u.s in november for for us europeans mm-hmm. um i think i don't know if canada has already opened up i don't my aunt when i her my aunt's husband's Canadian, but he was saying that it was a struggle still to go over to Canada. I don't know if that's loosening up in November as well or anytime soon for Europeans, but uh, we need to meet in Vegas. I think that's on the plan. That's been the ongoing, uh, that's been the ongoing plan, but uh, with any luck, maybe we'll brush shoulders at academic conferences, uh, you know, in, again, in the near future. Um, yeah, with any luck, I've got uh, some exciting things in the works and... Uh, um, Anything you care to share with the uh, the listeners? Or uh, not? Yeah, I'll be reserved uh, uh, because I don't want to count my uh, chickens 
before they hatch, mm. but uh, I'm also just generally curious. Yeah, uh, I, we don't actually have a chat before it starts recording. We just jump into it. This so. is the joys of authenticity and uh, and meaningful conversation. So people that have followed along thus far knew that I was pursuing a PhD program. Haven't been successful over the last few years, um, but had a breakthrough. It seemed this week. I had a conversation with a fantastic scholar. Um, and she is uh, in Canada, and so I'm uh, I'm pursuing right now a funding application uh, for the federal government to to pursue oh, yeah. studies. And she she's been kind enough to commit uh, to offer to write a letter of reference for funding oh, and, wow. and to and to try to help uh, fight for admission uh, into the PhD program uh, come September. So she's talk, we're talking about co-authoring a paper. Um, you know, this is someone who has given an, an, you know, a fantastic amount of, uh, a tremendous amount of hope, uh, for someone who was starting to feel a bit hopeless after so many, uh, not rejection letters, but, um, non-admission letters, not not rejected, just not admitted. Yeah. Over the last four years. So, um, you know, more to that point, you know, she's talking, she's already got an idea of uh, supervisory committee. And in fact, oh, wow. uh, later this afternoon, I'm speaking with one of those people uh, that she anticipates will be on my um, committee. And so there's, there's things in the works, my friend. That's amazing. Yeah. And this might not be interesting to your viewers or, or to listeners. So feel free to uh, cut it out. But you said that you're looking for, um, she's going to, how do you say, sign or put those agreements or whatever it is for applying for funding with the government. So I take it that it's similar to the UK where you can get a position, but then you need to find funding. Um, question was, and I had is, if you get granted the funding, does that increase highly your chances of getting a PhD? Like, uh, apart from in this case, because I can imagine if she signed it, it means, oh, yeah, if you get the funding, then we'll accept you here. But I mean, apart from that, say that you were to get this funding and then you were to go to a different university and say, hey, I've got this funding. This is the research project. Will you accept me? Are they more likely to take you then or not particularly? Yes. Uh, so the way it works in Canada is uh, funding is is usually separate from the offer of admission, although many universities offer, um, you know, some scholarships uh, when you're admitted as a PhD mm-hmm. to, to greater or lesser extents. Obviously, the department uh, is going to look more favorably on your application if you're coming with external funding. So, yeah. um, so I've learned in my previous applications that you must at least apply and to uh, uh, referring to the conversation earlier with the scholar, she, she, she just, you know, there's politics there at play as well. And uh, you know, it can be a crapshoot. Fantastic scholars don't get the funding and, uh, and, and sometimes they do get the funding, but you have to at least apply. So that's the deadline that I'm working at for now. And, um, and actually rather than the traditional, um, crim, criminal, criminology perspective or the sociological one, I'm, uh, I'm taking a bit more of an interdisciplinary approach, um, that has to do with health. The, the work that, uh, the work that this scholar, um, who shall rem- remain nameless at the moment, uh, you know, she, she's doing a lot of work about, uh, public safety officials in Canada and, uh, work on occupational stress, um, you know, um, and, and presumptive legislation about um, 
occupational stress and uh, and post-traumatic stress disorder and that sort of thing. So the focus, uh, I think, which is most timely of, of my research is going to look at uh, experiences of risk oh, right. uh, and, and pain, uh, uh, but specifically looking at balancing the idea of security and health and these two things. And so cool. something that resonated with me that she, that, that, um, that I'm going to pursue further is, you know, this balancing of security and health. Uh, and, and that seems so relevant now in, in the days of, uh, mm. of, of the pandemic, you know, those, cool. those who, those who do not have health pose a, uh, public safety risk, or they are a security issue. For example, if you have the pandemic and you're not willing to, uh, allow interventions, but those mm. who are a security risk, uh, for example, who are in prison often uh, d- don't have very good health. So these two things work in tandem, and and that was um, that was an eye opening moment for me. And that's how I'm going to pursue. So cool. Yeah, I think so. It's I, I think this is the one, my friend. It's definitely how do you say a very much a quote unquote hot topic at the moment with a uh, corona. Mm-hmm. So it's perfect in that sense. But also, what came to mind is, do you know the British criminologist Phil Scraton? No. So he basically um, wrote, I think it was quite a while ago, but this was way before Corona, like maybe 15 years ago, but he wrote this book on, in the UK, we have what we call the Hillsborough disaster, which was um, a a stadium, football stadium, which collapsed, basically. And he did this criminological investigation. So not just that he wasn't a journalist, but it was actually criminological into this notion of health and safety criminology. To basically looked into how it is with the different laws, etc., how it is actually uh, rolled out with all these safety measures, etc., the impacts to victims, all this sort of stuff. But because you're talking about health, <clears throat> I think his work would be interesting to you. So I'll send you his name here. Oh, good. Um, he's a critical criminologist. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think that you'd like his stuff. Phil Scranton, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll he's check. He's one of ours, a critical criminologist. I'll put him in uh, in my notes here for uh, for reference to the show notes, uh, so yeah, people can check him out if they're interested. Um, maybe we'll have him on the show. We'll see. <laughs> Hopefully, he's he's uh, retired now, but um, that means he hasn't got anything to do. So yeah, well, all the more reason, uh, and that's what we're looking for: emirate uh, uh, experts, you know who. To, uh, all these young, all the all these young ones are too busy anyway with jobs and that sort of rubbish. Well, I think it would be interesting to get some PhD can more PhD candidates on uh, to hear about the research that's going on. I mean, um, yeah. So stay tuned, and and that will uh, that is forthcoming. I wanted to. Oh, side note. You I, yes, go. Once again, you can probably cut this out because it's probably not interesting to your listeners. We'll but see. if you're interested, it I've might got stay a colleague. In. What's that? Sorry, it might stay in all this. I like this rough stuff because it's kind of behind, like the rough stuff. behind, yeah, <laughs> behind the scenes. You, you like all like this that. rough stuff. And you put it like <laughs> you haven't changed, Mike. <laughs> the puns uh, continue, um, like yeah. the wind in Amsterdam, as I remember getting blown all the way over to the Red Lake <laughs> District. Uh, figuratively <laughs> speaking, not not literally. Jeez, oh, um, sorry, yeah. I, I digress again. Yeah, finish. No, that no, thought. no worries. To go back to the rough stuff, uh, as that's what you like. I got a PhD colleague who is talking about this notion of social justice and his research is based on this notion of social justice and he's just started a course on what we call critical geography which i think ties in nicely to things we talked about today such as disparities between rural and metropolitan but also to do with race etc and how um 
basically his research and the course he teaches is very much focused on pretty much where you come from um, has a critical uh, uh, sorry I'm going to phrase that where you come from has a defining impact on how your life will be which sounds pretty self-evident and he can explain it way better but I think he would be uh, a person of interest for your research for your uh, podcast sorry so I'm here, if you're interested I- I'll send you a CV and stuff and then I can discuss it with him put us in touch uh, put us in touch absolutely put us in touch in email and uh i'm already thinking of this topic that i'm I, i've been reading about lately uh known as carceral geography uh, or carceral oh, spaces yeah this notion of how you know the prison is not an absolute place uh the walls are are far more permeable than people might imagine and while ideas and things get exported into prison, they also get exported out of prison. And so you can see in cases of, uh, um, you know, um, bail, for example, there's some fantastic scholarship ah, in Canada, and cool. on bail, on, on parole, for example, uh, probation. Uh, you know, in fact, the penal net is far reaching beyond prison and uh, could even be extended to, you know, uh, detention camps. Uh, oh, this, epic. Yeah. So carceral spaces and carceral geography is fascinating to me. And I'd be very glad to connect with your uh, candidate, whether it's on the Rex Crimshaw Rex Crimshaw or not your colleague who's studying um, um, geographies of that type. I wanted to try to package this up neatly, but I imagine you're, um, you're uh, needed and I can hear your phone um, going off there. Um, I put so it on a mute. We'll, we'll conclude uh, uh, momentarily, but I did just want to um, share this idea of Orange Shirt Day, um, um, tying back in with the idea, I guess, of politicization maybe, and mm-hmm. uh, and and um, and the essence of today that we're recording for Truth and, and Reconciliation Day. Can I just share where this this idea of orange shirt to where it, where it came from? Please do, because I know nothing about it. We, we, in France, we're familiar with the yellow vests, but orange shirt, I've never heard of. Well, for me, I kind of scratched my head because um, having studied penology and being keenly interested in prisons, as you know, in the US and, and even on Netflix shows uh, and in Canada, inmates are uh, stigmatized uh, in the way that they wear orange often in, in their uh, in their detention, uh, unlike other countries, uh, as a side note. So I, I was mindful of this, but um, in fact, that's my own perception. It has nothing to do uh, with uh, with prisons per se, um, but um, but National Day for Truth and Reconciliation was born out of a grassroots approach uh, known as Orange Shirt Day, which came from a woman named Phyllis. Webstad, who was um, of uh, of a First Nation, I, I don't want to butcher the. Uh, it was a northern um, place, Shuswab First Nation. Uh, so I'm going to sh- share, yeah, share share uh, links in the show notes about this fascinating story where she is a survivor of the residential school system in Canada, and uh, as recent as the 1970s, went to a residential school. And had her shirt, which was orange in color, taken from her because it was a symbol of, um, you know, where she had come from, which, uh, which, Modern. yeah, as a result of assimilation, was not welcomed in the residential school. Um, yeah, as it was known, uh, they, you know, they wanted to take the Indian out of the child. So this is a, an example of forced assimilation, and and so, um, yeah, and so that's the. 
you know, that's the, uh, the moral, um, here in Canada for today, at least I'm walking around and, and glad to see people wearing that orange and, uh, observing this, uh, this, this that's legacy. Amazing. So it's yeah. basically, uh, sticking it to the man by wearing the uh, orange shirt as a form of protest, uh, against what happened. Well, that's the beauty of it. It started out as a grassroots approach and her story is one of, of resilience, but it was actually not until it sort of blew up ostensibly through social media that this Mm. grassroots approach became recognized by the federal government. And only within the last couple of weeks, I think, did they uh, turn to a national holiday. And so it's a holiday here in Canada now. It's actually a holiday as in like, how do you say, um, institutionalized, a day off of work, et cetera, businesses closed in that sense? Correct. That's amazing. Wow. At least federally. So federal workers um, and, uh, and because it's new, I think others will follow suit, but there's been questions about how we should um, pay our respects and, and, uh, and maintain, uh, you know, have observances of this, uh, these atrocities. And I guess I I should thank, I should thank you is what I'm trying to say for helping me celebrate in this unique way. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I think it ties in nicely to uh, what we started with, the critical race theory, how uh, if we look at the other side of the coin, that also structures and institutions can help to kind of uh, change the discourse or attempt to try and change things in one way or another. And I think the fact that this came from a grassroots movement that kind of moved its way up the chain, so to speak, is like a very encouraging and, uh, how do you say, a very positive message, at least in my opinion. I think so too. One of the things that I, I've been struggling with uh, in wanting to pursue my PhD is the problem that, um, you know, information or um, at least in my line of work, I see uh, a very didactic approach, a top-down yeah. approach where there isn't much information channeled up from the bottom. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is a, a win or a success story of, of, yeah. of the need to recognize uh, – um, perspectives from the bottom up. So maybe that's a, a useful uh, note to conclude on. There'll be a Netflix show about it at some point. Let's, uh, let's hope they, uh, they do justice. Yeah, definitely. Well, my friend, as always, I'm, uh, delighted to be connected with you across the, uh, Atlantic, despite, uh, geography where we're close, uh, you're close in my, um, where the hell am I going with this? You, you <laughs> close uh, to me and, and to my heart. <laughs> so, you get into the rough stuff again. Thanks for taking the time to get on here, my friend, yet again. Oh, thank you. It's been an honor and a privilege as always, man. My, my, my absolute pleasure. Just need to, we just need to heighten up the innuendos next time. Hasn't been that many, so... Uh... <laughs>